Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From GPB, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Growing up in Atlanta in the 1970s, Jonathan Weissman didn't think much about anti-Semitism. In fact, he didn't think that much about being Jewish. That and much of his life changed in 2016 when he, as deputy editor of the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, posted a quote from an op-ed about fascism on Twitter. That tweet unleashed a torrent of anti-Semitic images, threats, and other forms of cyber-stalking that shattered his complacency. Weissman used the tools of his profession to expose the trolls and the political culture and technological forces that have fueled an avalanche of attacks against Jews since 2016. From online conspiracies to real-world violence, like the massacre of 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in October of 2018. The killings at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh follow what the Anti-Defamation League says is an historic 57% rise in anti-Semitic incidents from 2016 to 2017. It was the biggest single-year increase since the group started tracking such data almost 40 years ago. More recently, a gunman killed one and injured three others at Chabad of Poway Synagogue in Poway, California. That was on the last day of Passover. That attack revives the relevance of my earlier conversation with Weissman, who tracks historic and present-day acts of hatred in Semitism, being Jewish in America in the age of Trump. I spoke with him in November and asked what it was that he tweeted on May 18th of 2016. Yeah, you know, this is a fairly routine thing in my life. I just, uh, I read this column um, by Robert Kagan, who is a a conservative Brookings Institution scholar. He's Jewish. He's Republican. uh, And he wrote, this is how fascism comes to America. I took a little snippet of it, slapped it into Twitter, sent it out in the world. And I got this curious response from somebody calling himself at CyberTrump. It just said, hello, Weissman. But Weissman was in three parentheses, uh, set off by three parentheses. I kind of intuited Weissman's a Jewish-sounding name. I wonder what this is. And I sent him a note back saying, care to explain? And then he sent, CyberTrump sent me another note saying, what ho the vaunted Ashkenazi intelligence? Hmm. It's a dog whistle, fool. I'm belling the cat for my fellow Goyim. And then this absolute onslaught of anti-Semitic hatred started coming my way. So you got the, these three parentheses was getting your name echoed, I guess they call it. So it's a targeting tool, right? So people who can find it, find you. What what kind of responses did they send? Yeah, exactly. Bizarrely enough, and I didn't know this at the time, there was a piece of software called the Coincidence Indicator, uh, blandly named so that Google wouldn't notice it. Um, And if you downloaded this software, uh, you could search out three parentheses. And therefore, the followers of the alt-right, this new kind of form of anti-Semitic, racist bigotry, could search out targeted Jewish uh, journalists for attack. And, you know, the images that I saw were things like my face photoshopped on a victim of the Holocaust about to get his brains blown out by by a Nazi or Donald Trump throwing a switch on a gas chamber with my face superimposed inside the uh, inside the door. Um, 
you know, uh, one of my favorites was uh, uh, the gates of Auschwitz. Um, but instead of saying um, work makes you free in German, it said Mach in America great again. Uh, it was a bizarre amalgam of anti-Semitic hatred and pro-Trump bizarre rhetoric. So you weren't the only Jewish journalists harassed by the alt-right. There's so many that the Anti-Defamation League actually began tracking it. Some had to move. Some Jewish news organizations increased security. But you did not go underground. Instead, you wrote an op-ed calling it out. Were you advised against engaging with these trolls? It's interesting that you ask that because, in fact, the head of the Anti-Defamation League reached out because what I was doing was I just I wanted everybody to see what was happening so I was kind of retweeting them sending them out into the into my to my broader audience and saying look at what is going on out there of course this stirred more attacks because they wanted to, uh, their attacks to be broadcast by a more prominent voice um, so in some ways you know I knew that it was a double-edged sword I was letting people know how much hatred there was out there but I was also in some ways encouraging it. Um, and the head of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, actually reached out to me and said, I see what you're doing. I think it's okay, but maybe you should stop now. Well, this is just one of many incidences of anti-Semitic acts that have been on the rise increasingly since the election. And in this case, your case, the campaign of Donald Trump. Were there any specific references to him next to that uh, mock in America great again? Oh, all sorts of them. I mean, there's a, a lot of the images were kind of Donald Trump beating back the brown skin and black skin masses and things like that. Um, you know, Trump as the great uh, vanquisher of the so-called white genocide. Uh, Trump was a big factor in all of this. And remember, during the campaign in 2016, at one point, Trump was on CNN and he was confronted um, with the swirling anti-Semitism around his campaign. And he said, well, I, I don't control my followers. There was another incident where Melania Trump had a profile in GQ by a Jewish journalist named Julia Yaffe had uh, ruffled her feathers. She didn't like it. That triggered an onslaught of attacks against Julia Yaffe. And uh, Melania was asked about that. And she said, well, she provoked it. So there was a sense that there was no pushback coming from the Trumps. And that to the alt-right, to the perpetrators of this bigotry, was encouragement. Well, you, these people lost all compunction about appearing to be anti-Semitic, but you made the case that the Trump campaign played to those interests. Let's hear an ad that you point out. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. Jonathan Weissman, listeners can't see that ad. What is going on? As he is talking about the global special interests who don't have your back, you're seeing the Jewish faces of George Soros, of Janet Yellen, the Fed chairman at the time, and of uh, Lloyd Blankfein, uh, the uh, chairman of Goldman Sachs. And, you know, a lot of people might not have known that Janet Yellen, Lloyd Blankfein, and uh, and George Soros were Jewish. But believe me, the alt-right knows. You write in the book that you don't think that Donald Trump was aware of how anti-Semitic his campaign was. Why do you say that? Remember, 
Donald Trump does have um, a beloved son-in-law who is an Orthodox Jew, Jared Kushner, and uh, his daughter, uh, Ivanka Trump, has converted to Judaism. His grandchildren by Jared and Ivanka are Jewish. It's hard to imagine that he is an outward, open anti-Semite, right? But he obviously has been told many, many, many times over that the anti-Semites think he's an anti-Semite, that the anti-Semites feel that he is encouraging them. My guest is Jonathan Weissman. He was raised in Atlanta. He's now deputy Washington editor for The New York Times. And we're talking about his book, Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. Well, this book helped me understand an alt-right worldview that I didn't really know about before. The white supremacists believe that black, Latino, and Muslim people are inferior, yet they're somehow taking over my country. Help us understand how hating Jews fits into that. Right. You know, in the worldview of the uh, rising white nationalist movement, there is something called white genocide going on, that the white people are being eradicated or at least replaced. Um, And they look at the Latino and Muslim immigrants and African-Americans and they think, wait, we believe that these people are inferior, so why are they winning? And then they have to search for the puppet master. And the puppet master, in this case, are the Jews, specifically European-descended Jews called the Ashkenazi Jews. For some strange reason, I have no idea why, they have decided that the Ashkenazi Jew is the most intellectually powerful member of the human race, but uh, he or she is inherently nefarious, always using that intelligence for nefarious purposes. In this case, he is orchestrating the white genocide. And so when we saw them chanting in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us! Jews will not replace us! That's what they are talking about, that Jews are replacing whites with the ground troops of the white genocide, the black and brown people. Uh, So in the ad that says the levers of power, the hands on the levers of power in Washington? In Washington and globally in the United Nations, look across the globe. The rise of this kind of bigoted authoritarian nationalism spans the globe. Well, you learned a lot about the origins and how Twitter trolls are unleashed, beginning with Gamergate. First, remind us of what happened there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, for the longest time, uh, the anti-Semites and the bigots and uh, racists on the Internet kind of lived in their own little worlds. They were on Stormfront or the Daily Stormer, and they read each other on their own websites, but they didn't really reach out. Then this strange episode called Gamergate happened in about 2002. 11, 2012, 2013, where the kind of lads in their parents' basement who played video games decided that a small group of women video game designers needed to be destroyed. They were creating feminist, touchy-feely video games that did not fit with their conception of, you know, first-person shooter, mow-them-down kind of video games. And they began attacking these women designers online. They doxed them, meaning they would publish their social security numbers, bank records, whatever. They put out their addresses. They really tried to destroy these women, um, and they really almost did. 
to the alt-right, uh, to those people who had been living in their own little uh, racist ghettos, this was a seminal moment because they said, wow, we've got to learn how those guys are doing it. They are learning how to weaponize the internet and we should do the same thing. And that was really when you saw the racists, the anti-Semites, the bigots come out of their own little worlds and start sending out their messages on places like 4chan, 8chan, the chat rooms of YouTube and Reddit, um, where innocent bystanders, people would just run into it. We know that that kind of thing, that swamp exists on the internet and that kind of harassment, but how significant is it in terms of real numbers versus just the loudness or the volume of those voices? It's very hard to quantify that, but I always like to tell this story that my own teenage daughter showed me. Um, There's this YouTuber called PewDiePie. Most of your listeners probably will have never heard of PewDiePie, but if you were a 12-year-old boy, you probably would have. He's this guy from Sweden. He's very silly. He makes these internet videos. He's got a huge following. And there was this one video in which he was had hired these two guys in India for $5 to do this secret mission. And um, as he was uploading this video of these two guys, and he was saying, oh my gosh, do you think he's, they actually did it? Did they actually do what I asked them to do? And then they show this video of these two Indian guys out in the bush somewhere, and they unfurl this banner, and the banner says, death to all Jews. Hmm. Now, PewDiePie is a kind of, he is acting bashfully, and he says, I can't believe that they did it. Oh, I'm so I feel so ashamed. But really, for literally millions of young men and boys, um, that was probably the first time they ever even saw the concept of death to all Jews. And this is how ideology spreads, by accident, by serendipity. And you mentioned, in fact, that even though people say, oh, this is just going on on the internet, that it couldn't be just confined to commentary. How, how, does, it, how does it move, make that what you call the great leap forward to real life? When did you first see well, that? Well, when most people first saw it was at Charlottesville. The, the great melee of the Unite the Right rally was when people realized this was flesh and blood. Uh, now, it had actually had happened before then. There was an incident where a follower of the so-called Alt-Reich had stabbed to death a young African-American student in College Park, Maryland. There was another incident in which uh, a follower of the Alt-Right was berating two uh, teenage girls who were wearing the hijab in uh, Portland on the light rail, and two men stood to confront him, and they were stabbed to death in broad daylight. Now we have Pittsburgh. So we all know that these are real people. Uh, They are stewing in hatred, and they are in a violent culture, and the clash of hatred and violence is almost inevitably going to lead to bloodshed. We're going to continue our conversation with Jonathan Weissman. He's deputy Washington editor for The New York Times. After the break, we're going to talk with him about growing up in Atlanta, where his family attended the temple and the historic anti-Semitism that resurfaced then and has been resurgent today. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and my earlier conversation with Jonathan Weissman, deputy Washington editor for The New York Times and author of Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. 
Weissman grew up in Atlanta, where his family attended the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation, known as the Temple, the very synagogue bombed by white supremacists in 1958 in retaliation for the rabbi and congregation's support for Dr. Martin Luther King and the movement for equality. Shortly after the blast, Mayor William Hartsfield spoke on WSB-TV. The end result of bigotry and intolerance. It was an inciting event in the union of Jews and African Americans in the civil rights movement. Jonathan, after these attacks, virulent attacks by this unhinged white supremacist online, you think, I'm, I'm a son of the South, not a Hasid from Crown Heights. Why me? What were you taught about the history of anti-Semitism, even that bombing as a kid growing up in Atlanta? My parents are New Yorkers, um, but uh, they moved to Atlanta when I was just two years old. I really do think of myself as an Atlantan. And they moved, when they moved, they joined the temple because of Jacob Rothschild and because of its prominence in the civil rights movement. Now, personally, I, um, growing up in the South, I saw a lot of racism, no question about it. I didn't see a lot of anti-Semitism. I really didn't think much about it. That was somewhat understandable. As I was researching this book, I found an amazing thing. I found out that possibly the most famous Jew that has ever lived in Atlanta was a member of my synagogue, the temple, and it was Leo Frank. You know, Leo Frank was lynched uh, in one of the most seminal moments uh, for Jews in this country. And for some reason, the temple kept it hush-hush that he act- was actually a member of the congregation. I was shocked by this, but, you know, there's something about uh, the Jewish community in Atlanta that has always downplayed uh, anti-Semitism, um, even as it has participated very publicly in the civil rights movement. That's interesting. You, in fact, you make a point that, you know, you were bar mitzvahed, you learned as little Hebrew as possible to get through the process but not a real sense of Jewish identity. You tell a story in the book about, in fact, not really knowing about oppression of others, and you realized it when you were at summer camp in North Georgia. What happened there? Yeah, I went to a a YMCA camp, Camp Pioneer, uh, in North Georgia, and it was a very integrated camp. Um, About uh, half the kids were black, half the kids were white. I was in this funny cabin um, where uh, the kids, the black kids were from, you know, pretty rough parts of Atlanta. They were tough guys. Uh, And I was this, you know, Sandy Springs suburban kid. But when we were on these van trips to go uh, rock climbing or canoeing um, or backpacking, we would get out into the rural parts uh, around Helen, outside of Helen uh, in North Georgia. And all of a sudden, um, the, these tough kids from downtown Atlanta would freeze up and they were afraid. And I remember one time uh, pulling into a gas station and the kids saying, hey, Jonathan, go out and get us uh, you know, some, something to drink and some moon pies. And I said, why don't you get out? And they said, no way, we'll never get out there. I mean, they were petrified um, of uh, the kind of what they called the crackers of North Georgia back then. This was like the late 70s. Um, I hope it's, they wouldn't feel the same way then, but it was really a real a revelation to me uh, that you know, I was not aware of the depth of fear and hatred still in my home state. 
So that wasn't something that you were raised with, this idea of, you know, Leo Frank was lynched, um, what, 1915, how many years beforehand would that have been? That was not carried by the people in your family or in your temple. No, uh, I don't think, you know, it's interesting. When Leo Frank was lynched, about half the Jews of Atlanta just up and left. The other half kind of went into hiding. Um, the uh, the rabbi at the temple at that time, Rabbi Marx, actually banned chuppah weddings, which were the traditional Jewish wedding. And uh, he actually recruited a Christian choir from across the street. Uh, the temple became a much more... Uh, frankly, church-oriented, church-looking place. Uh, It was as if we weren't going to stand up for ourselves. We were kind of going underground. Now, the temple is a lot different now, so I'm not at all saying that 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 has continued. But at that time, the response to anti-Semitism in Atlanta was not defiance. Um, Remember, the the Anti-Defamation League really got its start when Leo Frank was lynched, but that was in Chicago and New York, not Atlanta. But you're pointing out a key to something that just resurfaces over and over again in the book, this idea that there are these waves of anti-Semitism for Jews. You know, after the Leo Frank murder, the the, the congregation went underground. That changed. And, and you, yourself, you got kind of lulled into this, what do you call it, the subtlety of the suburbs. You know, you were protected. Um, you married a blonde Southern Baptist, raised your two daughters as nothing, as you say. But you still brought them to High Holy Days observances. What, what did you want for your daughters to understand about who you were as Jews? There was this kind of simple notion that uh, we could all just kind of meld into Americanness, uh, that we didn't need a religious or a cultural identity. But... One of the big lessons of 2016 for me is, you know, you can you can downplay your Jewishness, but eventually uh, your Jewishness will find you. <laughs> and I have become much, much more Jewish identified since then, as have my children, frankly. Well, okay, so I want to go back to this, what was set off by the lynching of Leo Frank in 1915. And quickly, just a little backstory on that. Many of our listeners may know it, many more, like you didn't, may not. Well, so Leo Frank was a... New Yorker. He had come down to Atlanta uh, as an engineer, and he was the manager of a pencil factory in Atlanta. Um, during that time, uh, a, I think she was a 13-year-old girl, Mary Fagan, was raped and murdered at the pencil factory. Now, most evidence suggests that kind of one of an itinerant worker had done it, but the powers that be in Atlanta had decided, no, it was this strange, out-of-town, New York Jewish guy um, named Leo Frank. He was the perpetrator. And the trial, when after Frank was accused, the trial became a huge sensation. It whipped up anti-Semitism that really uh, had not been seen in the South for quite some time. Leo Frank was considered some alien pervert um, that had to be taken care of. Now, he was convicted of the murder, even though there was a lot of sense that it couldn't have been him. And uh, the, the governor of Georgia at the time, in was really a profile of courage, commuted his sentence to life in prison. Um, now, that doesn't sound like much of a profile, uh, but he was not going to be hanged. He was going to just be in the Milledgeville prison camp for the rest of his life. 
This did not sit well uh, with the good citizens of Atlanta or greater Atlanta. A posse of very prominent America, uh, Atlanta citizens, especially from Marietta, went out, dragged him out of the Milledgeville prison, brought him back to Marietta, and uh, using the rope supplied by a former Cobb County sheriff, lynched him on a tree um, in what is now uh, an area near the Big Chicken. So bizarre and so upsetting. We're talking with Jonathan Weissman about Semitism being Jewish in America in the age of Trump, remembering the horrible case of the lynching of Leo Frank in the early 20th century that set off a very dark period for Jews. In fact, you say that 1920s and the 30s were pretty much the darkest hour for American Jews. Here's Charles Lindbergh, an American hero for the first nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic. He's urging the U.S. to stay out of World War II here by advocating for an America first attitude. We cannot allow the natural passions and prejudices of other peoples to lead our country to destruction. We are on the verge of war, but it is not yet too late to stay out. It is not yet too late to show that no amount of money or propaganda or patronage can force a free and independent people into war against its will. Now, of course, the Nazi atrocities were not fully known after the war, but certainly there were plenty of warnings and reportings. Kristallnacht, in fact, widely reported. So what, Jonathan, was the American public opinion of Jews, specifically Jewish refugees escaping war in Germany at the time? It's really startling when you read the rhetoric around Jewish refugees, even children uh, who were trying to escape Germany uh, and Europe at that time. It sounds exactly like the way we talk about refugees from Syria or from Central America now. They were portrayed as as terrible uh, national security risks, as uh, racial in, racially inferior, as uh, infiltrators of our country. Um, and public opinion was very much against letting these Jewish refugees into the country. And by and large, they weren't. Um, and many, many Jews went to the slaughter in the Holocaust because they could not come to the United States. There were a number of prominent anti-Semitic voices at the time, including Henry Ford, a well-known American. There were sermons on the radio, Catholic priest Father Edward Coughlin among them, uh, blaming the Great Depression on an international conspiracy of Jewish bankers. Admittedly, I did attack and will continue to attack atheistic Jews and atheistic Gentiles and those who sustain them. But as a matter of record, I will prove that actually I invited and still invite the non-communist, non-atheistic Jews whom I respect and with whom I deeply sympathize to join with me in combating communism. Widely broadcast on CBS radio. He had a lot of critics, uh, among them Catholics, but also a lot of supporters. And I wonder if this correlation between isolationism, anti-internationalism was always linked to anti-Semitism. I argue here that when there's a rise of nationalism, when you see national borders more clearly defined, you tend to get a rise of definitional 
national identity, right? If you're going to try to keep the others out, you have to define what we are. And invariably, when we are defining the we, the Jews become the them. Um, there is a great correlation between rising nationalism and anti-Semitism. Uh, we have seen it time and time again. You could go back to the Middle Ages um, to see uh, how virulent anti-Semitism can become bloody massacres at times of rising nationalism and identity. Well, it's chilling to also consider Lindbergh's group, the America First Committee, a pro-Nazi group, uh, we find out later. So is the America First movement, is that just a recurring name or an intentional throwback? I happen to know that Donald Trump actually didn't come up with America First. Um, it was actually in a in an interview with a reporter at the New York Times, David Sanger, and as uh, as Trump was describing his foreign policy, uh, his isolationist foreign policy, he it was David Sanger who said, "Well, so was this like an America First thing?" And he said, "Yes, yes, America First. And he grabbed onto this slogan. But but. There is no question that since he began using the America First slogan, people have told him, you know, this has anti-Semitic connotations. It goes back to the pre-war movement of Charles Lindbergh, which was pro-Nazi, um, anti-intervention. And for a lot of Jews to hear the term America First is chilling, but it has not stopped Donald Trump from doing it. Time and again, when Trump has been confronted with what other people feel is insensitivity to Jews, to blacks, to Latinos, to Muslims. He just kind of buffaloes forward. Well, we're going to get into that, uh, the philosophies and frameworks behind that in just a minute after the break. But I just want to go back to Leo Frank, because it, it was so significant to think of, you know, this man being lynched, pulled out of a prison a, an experience that so many African-Americans had had here in Georgia and across the South and across the United States, let's be absolutely frank. The Jews had their Emmett Till, you say in the book. So years later, this union of African-Americans and Jews in support of civil rights, what was behind that reaching out to this population that, you know, had seemed so separate from the Jewish population. I think that after World War II, um, the sense of, uh, you know, uh, that Jews had that we're all in this together, uh, obviously was crystallized in the Holocaust, but with the rise of, uh, of the civil rights movement, especially in the South, there was a, a growing understanding that oppressed minorities in the South had to come together to fight together. Uh, and that really did bring uh, uh, Southern Jews together with Southern blacks into a very public alliance in the civil rights movement. And it was kind of, it was not, you know, a lot of people think that was a natural thing, that Jews were always allied with, uh, with African-Americans or other minorities. And that's not really true. The civil rights movement really was the height of that. Uh, it was really the most public coming together. And, um, and, and frankly, the alliance is a little frayed right now. We're talking about the history and present of anti-Semitism in America with Jonathan Weissman. He's author of Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. We'll be back after a short break. This is On Second Thought.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. And we're listening to my earlier conversation with Jonathan Weissman, who's deputy editor of New York Times Washington Bureau. Weissman was targeted by white supremacists after posting a link to an article about the dangerous rhetoric used during the campaign of Donald Trump. His book, Semitism, digs deeply into the white nationalist movement that has been resurgent during the presidency of Trump. Weissman points to an interplay between that movement and Trump's campaign and administration. The use of coded and not-so-coded language that smacks of Jewish conspiracies, racist memes like the cartoon character of Pepe the Frog. Weissman pointed out some examples to his colleague Michael Barbaro on an episode of The Daily. Are you familiar with this meme called Pepe the Frog? Okay, so if you're those who don't, here's a picture. This is, here's Pepe the Frog, okay? Uh, and one of the people who caught on to the sort of Pepe rage was Donald Trump Jr., who had a, a thing for retweeting a lot of neo-Nazis, interestingly enough, on Twitter. He posted this on September 10th, and there's Pepe right in the middle. This shows solidarity with the alt-right. Right, with white supremacy. We have gone from dog whistles to full-on barking. Donald Trump is facing backlash over uh, this tweet that included the star of David. The tweet shows the Jewish symbol over images of Hillary Clinton and dollar bills. The message over the star says, most corrupt candidate ever. Megan, the debate boils down to whether or not you'd think a six-sided star looks more like a star of David or a sheriff's badge. Rhetoric went beyond social media posts, T-shirts and bumper stickers to physical attacks on sacred sites and symbols and on people of color and a close-knit synagogue in Pittsburgh where 11 people were gunned down during worship last fall. Before the more recent attack on a synagogue in Poway, California, which killed one woman and injured three others, the alleged attacker posted a manifesto filled with references to anti-Semitic right-wing memes on the extreme right internet forum 8chan. Now back to my earlier conversation with Jonathan Weissman. Weissman untangles the historic and contemporary conspiracies that underpin white supremacy and its hatred of Jews, while also supporting the state of Israel. Which for me, Jonathan, was not a real intuitive connection. How is that philosophy of hating Jews at the same time being so pro-Israel, how did that evolve? It's a strange thing, but the alt-right sees the world as a series of ethno-states. They will say, we aren't racist, we just think that blacks should all live together in Africa. We don't hate Latinos. We just think they all should live together in someplace else. And the United States should be a white ethno state. So what does this have to do with the Jews? First of all, they are firmly of mind that Jews are not white and that Jews have an ethno state. Their ethno state is Israel and we Jews should all live in Israel. In fact, they look at Israel as something of a role model for the whole world. Here is a state that identifies itself as the Jewish state. It just passed a law uh, saying that it is a Jewish state and somewhat relegating non-Jews to second-class citizenship. The Israeli parliament has passed a controversial law today to declare that only Jews have the right of self-determination in the country, something members of the Arab minority called racist and verging on apartheid. Uh, the alt-right thinks that's fantastic. Jews, go live there. Mm. And there's also the note that they support the idea that Jews kill Muslims. But, but how does the then Jews become the enemy of that movement. 
<laughs> you know, I guess it's a begrudging respect for the intellect and power of Jews uh, that they could orchestrate the white genocide and have their own ethnostate. So we'll, we'll encourage one thing, that ethnostate, uh, we'll discourage the other thing. And hey, if we can get you out of our hair over there, then at least you're not over here orchestrating our demise. So why has this been so resurgent under Donald Trump? Well, of course, Trump is a nationalist, too. He actually calls himself a nationalist. And so the white nationalists listen to his rhetoric, and they feel that they are getting encouragement. As Andrew Gillum, the Democratic candidate for the Florida governorship, said to his opponent, you might not be a racist, but the racists think you're a racist. I mean, it, it is a powerful thing to look at the White House and believe you have a kindred spirit there. Well, here is just a little bit of Donald Trump on a visit to Israel, pledging his support. People from all nations, even nations that you would be surprised to hear, they want to stop the killing. They've had enough. America stands ready to assist in every way we can. Our deep and lasting friendship will only grow deeper and stronger as we work together in the days ahead. Jonathan Weissman, you dig deeply into the evolution of American-Israeli policy. What is it that supports and helps shape President Trump's policy towards Israel? President Trump actually has a a core group of his supporters in mind, Uh, and it's not just the Jews. It's really the evangelical Christians. The right-wing government in Israel right now understands that evangelical Christians in the United States far outnumber Jews. They are incredibly powerful uh, within the Republican Party and incredibly powerful with the President of the United States. So as long as the Israeli government has the evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews behind them, they feel like the public opinion of conservative Jews and Reform Jews, the two dominant branches of American Judaism, are not that important since they are so outnumbered by evangelicals. Remember when Donald Trump went to Israel to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. President Trump became the first world leader to recognize Jerusalem as our capital. And today, the United States of America is opening its embassy right here in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you, President Trump, for having the courage to keep your promises. That was something that American, many American Jews have sought for a very long time. But in the audience, the audience that he brought over was dominated by evangelical Christians. And I think that was a very important message that he was sending. Trace back that support for the state of Israel by evangelicals. And above all other domestic-based charities, support organizations, you say that it has completely become about Israel. What happened and how? Well, for evangelical Christians, this is something of theology. Um, The belief is that the ingathering of Jews back to Zion, back to Israel, is a necessary precursor to the return of Jesus. So, of course, evangelical Christians are very supportive of Israel and very supportive of Jews going to Israel. It's part of the religion. For American Jews, over the last two to three decades, our focus on domestic policy has really been subverted to an overriding focus of our institutions on Israel. 
That's especially true since the Six-Day War in 1968, in which the Arab world attacked Israel, and in the 73 war, the Yom Kippur War, in which at one point it looked like Israel could actually lose. That really focused the mind, and you also see that some of the American Jewish organizations found that the great common denominator, the one thing that American Jews could agree on, was support for Israel. So it became easier to organize, to grow, to raise money if your focus was on Israel. And I argue in the book that um, the American Jewish community somewhat lost its focus on what's happening around it by focusing so dominatingly on Israel. So by pointing out that strategy, that plunges you into a thicket oftentimes that has become radioactive, not just for politicians, but for journalists and all kinds of other people who have done research on this. Have you faced the most criticism for this than anything else you do in the book? Absolutely. When I travel around this country, I even was in Canada a few weeks ago in Montreal, I talk about what I call the Israel diversion, um, how our eyes have been drawn away from our environment over to Israel, and that process has allowed us to be lulled asleep as this rising nationalist movement has come. I always get confronted. People get really angry if they believe that I'm suggesting that we should ignore or no longer pay any attention to Israel. It's actually a, an issue that divides American Jews tremendously. Well, let's hear. Uh, you spoke to Michael Barbaro for The Daily, the New York Times podcast, and played a little bit of a clip from somebody that had called you and left a voice message. It's your despicable Democrat party that's anti-Semitic hate Jews like me. We were once with the Democrat Party, but after eight full years of anti-Semitism on Obama and the Democrats, <clears throat> we love Trump and we lo- we're, we're Republicans. So, Jonathan, your response when you got that message, I'm curious. Well, I, I kept it um, just to have it, but I uh, wasn't that surprised I get this a lot, especially if I go to Orthodox synagogues. Uh, I remember being in West Hampton Beach, in New York, and being told that I'm an anti-Semite and I'm a self-hating Jew. And, you know, the funny thing is I'm not saying we shouldn't care about Israel. I'm not saying that at all. What I say is that American Jews should be at least as determined to maintain support for Judaism in the United States as we are to keep political support for Israel, at least, but not to the exclusion. And yet this is somehow a very controversial thing to say among many Jews. Yeah, that was a a kind of odd twist for me in an era that you are making an argument that there are so many forces rallying with anti-Semitism in mind, not just online, but in the physical space, in IRL, as we say in internet language. And then there is another group that is saying, uh, we support basically white nationalists. Is, is that the right conclusion? I would say this. I would say that they would say there there is some right-wing anti-Semitism, but it is small, it's insignificant, and it pales in comparison to what they call left-wing anti-Semitism, which is really a rising opposition to Israeli policy or anti-Zionism. I do not say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Others do. And 
Look, even since Pittsburgh, even since 11 Jews were massacred by an alt-right bigot, I still hear that the real threat is from the left and its opposition to Israeli policy. Mm -hmm. So you talked about shifting the focus to morality and the original mission that Jews had in the world, tikkun olam, which is one of those. What what, what does that translate to? Uh, Tikkun olam means repairing a broken world. Uh, It is a uniquely American concept to Judaism. I mean, all Jews believe in tikkun olam, but American Jews have made it central to our religion. Uh, and I actually think that it should, it, that is how we address what we are seeing uh, around us with this rising bigoted authoritarianism. But are there not many organizations that are like the Tree of Life Synagogue? They had a relationship with welcoming refugees from other parts of the world. Absolutely. You know, one of the motivators of uh, Robert Bowers, the gunman in the Tree of Life, was the support of that synagogue for HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Um, This notion that uh, we should welcome the stranger and settle the stranger amongst us, so central to, to Judaism, which believes you must welcome the stranger because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, to the alt-right. Um, that is evidence that uh, we are indeed the perpetrators of white genocide. What we see as pure goodness and charity, they see as a, a sinister desire to replace them. And absolutely, there are beautiful, wonderful efforts uh, on the at the synagogue level and smaller Jewish organizations um, that really are focused on these things. My criticism is mostly aimed at the big mainline Jewish organizations that I still believe are not speaking out forthrightly enough. Well, let's talk about some of the themes and draw them to a close in your book. The walls come up, not a good time for Jews. Where are we right now? The walls are very much coming up. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's we are at a moment in our history where, for the longest time, since basically the 1950s, we saw the United States on an unsteady but upward trajectory toward a more pluralistic, more accepting, welcoming, and uh, tolerant society. And we had our blips, we went up, we went down, but generally we were going toward tolerance. Now we're at this moment where uh, we look around the world, uh, we look at the rise of the uh, intolerant right all over the world, and we have to wonder, are we at the end of that trajectory and we're nosediving downward, or are we at one of those little blips and we'll recover and uh, maintain our upward trajectory? I don't know. I don't know where we are. Uh, And that will be up to historians to really determine if we can regain our footing or if we are now stumbling down the other side. Another theme, I think, is free speech, that you argue that the right seized free speech and this idea that anything can be said and protected. And it's something that you saw levied at you, hurled at you in an avalanche. Would you rather know what the other side or those kind of strains of anti-Semitism are thinking than not? I would. Uh, I argue that uh, speech always finds a way. Uh, you know, right after Charlottesville, 
the neo-Nazi website, the Daily Stormer, um, was really blotted off the web. Uh, there, the Daily Stormer helped orchestrate the Unite the Right rally, and uh, a lot of the web hosting servers like GoDaddy decided they would no longer host the Daily Stormer for a time. It ceased to exist, except on the dark web, uh, very difficult to find. And then after a month or two, suddenly it re-popped up as the dailystormer.name, N-A-M-E. And to this day, I have no idea what .name is, where it came from, but there it is. It's back. So I would argue that suppressing speech on the internet whether you want to or not, is just simply impossible. Uh, and you have to beat hate speech with the opposite of hate speech uh, because you're not going to just stomp it out. Well, Jonathan, this led you on such an amazing trek to not only discover the history of your own family and localities, roots in anti-Semitism, your own relationship to the Jewish faith, if you had to do it all over again, would you still send that tweet? Uh, you know what? That's a f- uh, fantastic question. I've never had it. And uh, as you put it, I think absolutely I would still send that tweet. That was my earlier conversation with Jonathan Weissman, deputy editor of the New York Times Washington Bureau, Atlanta native, and author of Semitism, which digs into the white nationalist movement that has been resurgent during the presidency of Donald Trump. GBB Education's latest live virtual field trip starts this morning at 10. Tens of thousands of students from all over the country will learn about engineering design as they explore Georgia Tech's Invention Studio. It is the largest student-run makerspace in the world. The Flowers Invention Studio here at Georgia Tech houses over 25 different machines and more than 60 machines in total. The most commonly recognized one is the 3D printer. We have tons of 3D printers. They're our most commonly used machines. We have people in and out all day working on prototypes. These are the best machines to make your parts really quickly. 3D printing is a type of additive manufacturing, so we're adding material on top of material. They're a lot like a hot glue gun in that you can just melt what's called filament and add layers and layers to make whatever part you want to make. The process to get your part printed on a 3D printer starts by designing a part in a 3D computer-aided design software. Then you'll send it to a slicing software to cut it into a bunch of tiny layers so that these printers know how to build it. And then, just like you'd send a part to a normal printer, you just send it over. Here in the Flowers Invention Studio, we have the laser cutters. Lasers are just really concentrated beams of light, and when they're focused properly, they can cut through all kinds of different materials. Because we're cutting away different material, it's called subtractive manufacturing, as opposed to the additive manufacturing we saw on the 3D printers. Because we're cutting away different material, it's called subtractive manufacturing, as opposed to the additive manufacturing we saw on the 3D printers. We have some people that come in to make jewelry. We have some people to come in and laser engrave glasses for gifts. The laser cutters are my favorite machine at the Invention Studio. Yeah, so this place can get crazy busy. We're open Monday through Friday, and there's people constantly working on school projects, personal projects, and art projects all the time. That's from GPB Education's latest live virtual field trip to Georgia Tech's Invention Studio. You can check out the full thing at gpb.org invention. It's going to be online by 10 o'clock this morning. 
On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer, Don Smith our editor, Amy Kylie, senior producer, and Sarah Shariari, managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Always happy to hear from you on our Facebook group or on Twitter at OST Talk. This is On Second Thought.